Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is senior media reporter Hannah Blackiston. Hello. And making her Mumbrella Cast debut, reporter Brittany Rigby. Hello. Later in this episode of the Mumbrella Cast, we're bringing you our chat with nine CEO Hugh Marks, which took place on stage at Mumbrella 360. Mumbrella's Tim Burrows talks to Hugh about the Fairfax merger, or was it a takeover, the future of content on Stan, whether there are more cuts to come from the newsroom floor, and what his staff really think of him. It's a great in-depth chat with one of the media's most powerful CEOs, so it's well worth listening to. But before that, let's have a chat about the week's topics. The Logies reveals Australia's favourite television commercial. Ten says it's ditching overnight ratings. And Matt Baxter wants us all to ditch the pitch. So the TV Week Logies will be taking place at the end of June, but for the first time this year, they've introduced a new category for most popular television commercial. And ahead of time, they've revealed that the winner is Tourism Australia's Dundee campaign. So apparently, according to Bauer Media and TV Week, that is consumers' favourite television ad. Now, as we record this, we're still waiting for information back from Bauer Media about just how many people participated in this poll and how exactly they came to that conclusion. But we do know that the Dundee campaign by Droga 5 and UM was up against Aldi's Santa Crashes Christmas ad by BMF. It was up against Apple's First Dance by TBWA, Westpac's Frank by DDB Sydney, the I Am Captain of my Soul for the Invictus Games by Edge, Budget Directs It's a Mystery by 303 Mullen Lowe, Bonds Join the Queendom by Leo Burnett Melbourne, Meat and Livestock Australia's Lambside Story by The Monkeys, Myers Making My Christmas by Clemenger BBDO Melbourne, KFC's Naked Wrestling by Ogilvy, Burley's Serena, I Touch Myself by JWT Sydney and Thinkabelle's Vegemite campaign tastes like Australia. So that's a lot of ads that Australians had to choose between. And they definitely chose, I guess, the most prominent one and the one that got the most coverage in the mainstream consumer media. But Hannah, do you know why they've revealed this ahead of time or why it wasn't actually done at the ceremony as part of the awards itself? Um, well, I'm not 100% sure, but considering it did just take you about half an hour to read out <laughs> all the entrants, I suspect it's so that the winners alone will go to the Logies and not every single advertising agency in yes, Australia. Yes, I, I don't think I realised how many names I was about to <laughs> rattle off when I started. I think listeners will even be able to hear me losing interest in, <laughs> in my own story there. I definitely didn't uh, properly plan for that no. for that moment. Uh, so I understand that the winners get to go to the Logies. Where's the excitement for them if they know that they've already won? Well, yeah, not really there. They're going to have to do that fake surprise face where you're <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. Um, the question I actually have is why do we think this is the first year that they've decided to include commercials? Do we think this is a push from a commercial side? Do we think this is honestly as good as Australian TV has gotten at this point where awards are going to commercials and that's drumming up more in 
interest and awards going to TV shows? What do we think is the factor behind this? Well, I know the editor of TV Week, Thomas Woodgate, and he's been trying for some time to sort of reinvigorate the Logies and get a bit more, I guess, credibility back into that awards show because it's one of those weird things where consumers seem to love to hate it. You know, we do care who wins the Gold Logie and we do get behind ironic campaigns for winners like Grant Denyer's campaign being led by the ABC's Tom Gleeson last year and now Tom Gleeson going for gold (laughs) by pretending to quit his own TV show to try and emulate Grant Denyer's success. So we whinge about it, we hate it, but then we also do care about it in a weird way. And I think it's quite an ugly award in terms of to physically look at. And whenever we have that really that needy thing that Australia does where we have an international guest come out to like give us props like, oh, this is a real award ceremony because we have friends Matt LeBlanc here on stage talking <laughs> about how much he loves Australian television. They always make fun of how ridiculous the award looks mm-hmm. and its name and just everything about the tacky ceremony is what some people say. Uh, so I think maybe it's just part of his program of trying to reinvigorate it and breed some fresh air into it. I, I do agree that most popular television commercial is an interesting one. Like we care about ads. We talk about ads all day, every day. But I don't know that the TV viewing public love ads as much as we'd like them to. I don't know whether that's true though because you think about um, some of the biggest ads that have kind of entered the lexicon. It's obviously a bit of a controversial topic at the moment. But, you know, the um, – the Jan ad from Yellow Pages that obviously became, you know, people were saying that in the street. My parents still say that. So I do kind of get the thought that viewers, you know, ads kind of people, especially people who watch a lot of television ads kind of infiltrate into their lives. And I understand that, but I mean, yeah, 2019 does seem a little bit late in the game for that. There were some comments on the article when we, talked about it in the first place when it was announced earlier this year, I think around January, when some people said it was an utterly cynical attempt to get agencies to refocus spends on television commercials and that unfortunately, given our industry's love of meaningless awards, one that will probably work. (laughs) So look, I guess opinion is split on whether it's done to pick consumers' interests uh, about an ad that they really like and that they talk about and that has caught their attention or whether it's a sort of more commercial move. But I guess time will tell in the coming years whether this award sticks around and gets traction and we actually find out how many people voted and got involved compared to how many got behind the gold Logie winner, for instance. And then then I guess we'll we'll see whether consumers really do care. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. I feel like if this does, you know, for this to become a commercial thing and for – people in the industry to start caring about it, surely we're going to start needing to see some data and see what kind of traction they're actually generating online. It's worth noting that some people have sort of complained already that Australia's favourite television commercial wasn't even really targeted at Australians. You know, it was a campaign definitely uh, with an Australian flavour because it was advertising what our country has to offer in terms of tourism delights, but it wasn't aimed at getting us here. We're already here. It was very much an American-focused campaign. So I wonder if it says something about our view of ourselves or our view of what we make, that our favourite ad was about us projecting out overseas rather than about something locally. 
I think in terms of that, though, it's also not just what we liked the most, but what we saw and heard about the most. Mm. Um, and it can be difficult to pick those things apart, right? Like you listing out the the other finalists, there was some great ads among them, but none of them were as popular or heard about or read about as the Dundee ad. So, yeah, I mean, I question whether or not it's even what people – really resonated with the most and maybe just what they saw and were like yeah that was great I've heard about that I'm gonna give that my vote does it not seem like a this is probably a little bit mean but does it not seem like a bit of a Logie's move that the winning ad is the one that had Chris Hemsworth in it Mm. so the winning ad is just the one with the most star power behind it so Chris Hemsworth wins a Logie that's quite good I didn't even think of that quite good marketing for them because you know sometimes it is criticized for giving awards to people that not many people know about. And I don't think anyone could claim that with Chris Hemsworth. So perhaps perhaps you're right, Hannah. Chris Hemsworth now has the first Logie of 2019. Next, why 10 CEO Paul Anderson is over the overnights. Ken's CEO, Paul Anderson, has come out and said that the network is ditching its overnight ratings. So at about 9 a.m. each day, the ratings from Oztam come through and everyone has a look at the successes, the failures and, you know, the unexpected surprises in there. Ten says that what comes through overnight in that sort of preliminary stage has become increasingly misleading and meaningless and don't reflect actual audience behaviours. This is something that the networks bring up quite regularly in terms of especially the trade media's focus and sometimes the consumer media's focus on those overnight numbers. A show can be deemed a flop and then suddenly pick up extra viewers on the catch-up services or people who've watched it in a different way and the networks feel like it's not fair that in that short turnaround time the numbers that Austan produces can dictate a media narrative that they feel might not be accurate. I do definitely understand that point of view and, look, Nine did a fantastic job of turning the narrative around with Love Island, which when people wrote about those initial overnight ratings, it was about the fact that the show was beaten by the likes of Bananas in Pyjamas and other shows like that for a funny headline but then lots of people started watching with that watching that content and engaging with that content in a different way and suddenly nine was able to show the media that the show was more of a success than they initially thought but at the same time when the networks do do really well in an overnight ratings whether it's in total people or whether it's in one of those key advertising demographics they will shout it from the rooftops about how well they did. So you can understand that Paul Anderson's move has been met with some cynicism, I imagine, Hannah. It has. It has been met with a lot of cynicism. And I um, I reckon 10 would have known that was coming. 10 are obviously the, the top network to be picked on at the moment. Um, and so I spoke to Beverly McGarvey about this in an interview, which will run on a later episode of the Mumbrella cast. Um, and she did make the point that um, – It's easy for everyone to say that 10 have done this because their ratings aren't so hot, but they're not saying compare our seven-day ratings to everyone else's overnight's ratings. They're saying everybody should be doing seven-day ratings, which means everybody's numbers would go up. 10 would, you know, possibly still be at the bottom, but they would still be higher than the overnight figure. 
I think media agencies, though, do also look, you know, they're not, they're the ones who really matter in terms of looking at this. You know, we look at it for a headline, but it's those people who are booking and planning and strategizing on the media side who who matter more in terms of looking at this and deciding on spend and deciding how to reach certain people and demographics and what's going to hit those numbers and what's not. And I know that people in media agencies, planners and buyers aren't only looking at overnight ratings to make their decisions, but they do look at them because they do indicate how a show's going. You know, Married at First Sight does excellently in the overnight ratings and then that only climbs when you add in other data. If a show does well in the overnight ratings, it is an indication that things are going to go well and in a lot of cases if it doesn't go super well, as much as a show can build on other platforms, it does show that the marketing around that or the ability for it to draw people to actually stop what they're doing to sit down and watch linear television hasn't been very effective. I would say that, yeah, you're right in the way that um, the shows that we talk about, about being those kind of um, BVOD or catch up or SVOD service um, champions, which is Love Island, Yummy Mummies for Seven did it as well, where it suddenly found a new life on Netflix those are kind of the exceptions that prove the rule. And so I think, therefore, the fact that we're not discussing this across all programming probably suggests that you're right. But I also think um, it's important to note that while that was a very uh, clickbaity headline there from 10 about ditching overnight <laughs> ratings, they haven't actually ditched overnight ratings. So what they send out now um, is kind of a different look email, but it's still got the overnight ratings. It's just adding on top of that the time shift and the BVOD and the encores and the whatever else. So really they're just kind of giving a wider snapshot of what's actually happening to these shows. So Paul Anderson in an opinion piece he wrote for us called their new approach to TV audience data a true reflection of the new TV. So I guess we'll see how that goes over time. But speaking of overnight ratings, we might as well touch on one that probably didn't do as well for a network as they were hoping, and that's Seven's The Super Switch, which I believe, having not watched it, is an evolution of its seven-year switch program. So how did that do, Hannah? Yeah, it is an evolution of the seven-year switch. Um, So it premiered to 308,000 Metro viewers, which is pretty dire. Um, it It wasn't even in the top 20 shows the night that it premiered. Um, second night, it picked up a cup a little bit. It went to 381,000 viewers, um, really narrowly beating the ICC Cricket World Cup, which aired on Gem to 380,000 viewers. So yeah, it's, it's not doing well at all, but it will be interesting, I think, to see whether that's another one of these shows that does end up, then end up picking up elsewhere. But I would say, considering it's sitting currently on two nights a week in the 7.30 slot, I would expect it to be moved later pretty quickly. Yeah, look, it is definitely a show that lends itself to binge watching a bit a bit like Love Island or Married at First Sight where people can sit down and just get all of that drama at once and they don't have to watch it on the night that it airs like Game of Thrones where they risk, you know, life-ruining spoilers. But Married at First Sight was the same with lots of people catching up and lots of people watching it when and where they want and it was still able to get Metro audiences over a million every single night, that's sort of 700-odd thousand lower for Channel 7 than maths had. So as much as I'm sure they'll spin it that people are going to watch it on 
Seven's catch-up service and engage with it in different ways, I have no doubt that they would like that overnight number to be higher or indeed they might join Channel 10 in saying we should ditch that overnight figure altogether. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree. And, you know, married at first sight, I think uh, the fundamental problem that the other networks now have is nine is now become this kind of ratings juggernaut where the voice is doing really well. The voice has had its series peak outside of the premiere. It keeps going up. Um, Lego masters obviously did really well. So nine are kind of on this winning streak at the moment. And I think it's going to be um, whether it's possible to topple them off that. And super switch has definitely not done that. All right. Up next, can you imagine a world without pitches initiatives? Matt Baxter can, and he wants us all to hashtag ditch the pitch. So earlier this month at Mumbrella 360, Initiative's global CEO, Matt Baxter, took to the stage and called out bad clients and bad pitching processes. He lamented the money it costs, the time it takes and wastes, and the resources it drains to pitch for business. He wants it gone. We didn't actually get to cover this on the week of Mumbrella 360 because we had the special edition of the podcast featuring the three founders of Naked, which included Matt Baxter along with Adam Ferrier and Mike Wilson. But this was just such a popular chat that Matt did and it really had the room talking before, during and after. So I did really want to touch on it because he gave quite a stirring presentation which he thought would cause a lot of controversy so much so that he brought along a basket of tomatoes for the audience to throw at him should they disagree with him and he wanted people to call him out publicly and throw tomatoes at us on stage rather than wait until afterwards and do it anonymously in the comment thread now no tomatoes were thrown but the anonymous comment thread has gone off so um matt wasn't quite effective with his approach there. But Brittany, you were in the room for this very provocative section at Mumbrella 360. Why is Matt so passionate about getting rid of the pitch? Yeah, Viv, well, I think you touched on some of the reasons. I mean, ultimately, he thinks that um, there's some clients exhibiting some pretty poor behavior in the form of unreasonable expectations. While he did point out that there are obviously good clients among those as well. Um, But he said, yeah, it's a race to the bottom. And what that means is that it's actually really bad for clients that agencies already have. Um, If you're spending all of your time, a whole lot of money um, and a whole lot of resources pitching constantly, um, it turns out that it affects clients that you already have who are complaining that they don't have enough senior people on their accounts um, and then also impacts things like burnout and churn rate, um, which we know is really high in the industry because clients expect that pitches are going to be run over holiday periods so that they'll get back from their Christmas breaks and it's ready for them to look at. Um, and what that means for employees is that working in an agency is not that fun. Um, so yeah, he thinks that it's way too expensive, way too unreasonable. And that as an industry, there needs to be a stance taken to call it out um, and also step back from these pitches that have really unreasonable expectations attached to them. And he and Initiative did a lot of research to back this up. So they did sort of a comparison between the standards in the year 2000 and the standards in the year 2019. And he was saying on stage, you know, that the pitch process back in 2000 probably had three stages. Now there can be six stages involved in it. 
often they were just pitching for one brand, whereas now they might be pitching for up to three brands under the sort of big umbrella company. The intellectual property, Matt said back in 2000, the agency pitching an idea would own it. And he says now the expectation is that the intellectual property suddenly defaults to the brand so they could hear your idea and take it and not even award you with the business. He also said that basically in 2019, everyone's invited to pitch rather than the traditional 2000 approach of three to five agencies. But one of the ones that he really was upset by was the payment terms and the fact that back in 2000, an agency's sort of expectation for when it would be reimbursed for the ads it placed would be 70 to 30 days. So the money, you know, for the services that the agency's providing, you'd get it within seven to 30 days. He's saying they've now blown out to 30 to 120 days. And this was something that he was just saying is unacceptable and and needs to change. Brittany, did he say any more on that those payment terms? Yeah, he mentioned um, one pitch that's happening at the moment, um, which is for a CPG, a consumer packaged goods client, um, and yeah, basically a requirement of that pitch is that you have to agree to the 120 day payment terms. Um, so he did say, and I quote, I want to call out publicly Omnicom PhD who took a stand with us on not participating in that pitch. The really good agencies have got to start saying no. Um, and so ultimately that's what he wants for 120 day payment terms to be said no to. I wasn't in that session. Um, but my question is, how surely it's gotten to this point because people or agencies have been allowing it up until this point i think he was pretty um pretty clear that he agrees with that as well um he said that yes clients are being unreasonable but agencies have also facilitated that um and allowed it to happen and so yeah it's joint responsibility and that agencies are part of it I think because media agencies over recent years, and Matt fully admitted this, have sometimes engaged in some really dodgy practices which have generated a lot of headlines. So Matt was really open about that where he's like, media agencies have done some terrible things, so we've had a pretty terrible reputation and we get called out on it all the time. So perhaps because of that, because they've had this reputational damage and because clients are questioning their transparency and their honesty, perhaps they've had to sort of relent and accept things that they don't want to because they just need the business and there's not as much trust there as there used to be and there's not as much love between the client and the agency. So I think perhaps in order to win back clients' love and win back their respect, there's almost been a bit of a race to the bottom for some agencies. And I've talked about this with a lot of people in the industry in recent days since Matt's talk where you know, he wants everyone to just say, no, we will not accept your four-month payment terms. Pay us sooner. It's, you know, and Matt had all these analogies about other business relationships where you simply wouldn't accept payment that late. But I think his problem is, and and he knows that, is that one agency will always mm. say yes. So you'll, Brittany will take a stand. Zoe over here on the buttons will take a stand. Hannah, you'll take a stand. And then I'll look around and I'll go, well, if nobody else is going to do it, it's pretty easy business for Vivian over here. And that's the problem. Unless everybody unites and everybody says, absolutely not, pick up your game, someone will take it. And then the people who are trying to take a stand are going to miss out. And so then they start thinking, well, should I really take a stand? Because 
budgets are tightening, people aren't parting with as much money, I really need that money, maybe I'll just accept it. And I think that's the conundrum that media agencies find themselves in at the moment. Mm. I think what he's saying though is that clients should want to work with agencies who are trustworthy and understand their businesses and are in it for the long haul. Um, And so if you've got most agencies saying no, the one or two who still say yes will be looked upon really unfavorably. And over time that might impact their reputation enough for clients to not want to work with them. Um, But yeah, obviously it's an issue if not everyone's going to get on board. Yeah. And I do understand that view, but that's a very rose colored view. That's, you know, maybe there will be those clients out there who are like, oh no, I would never work with an unreputable, you know, agency, but there are definitely still going to be those clients who want those terms, who are asking for those terms and those terms have been delivered up until now and are going to just turn around and pick the agency that gives them. And beyond the hashtag ditch the pitch, I believe that Matt floated the idea on stage of launching ditchthepitch.com, which could become a place of accountability and a space where the industry can rip itself out of this unsustainable cycle and sort of talk about what's really going on. And I think it was sort of envisaged as an anonymous way to hold these brands to account. Brittany, do you think Matt actually will launch this website or is it a bit of a pipe dream fantasy? Um, I think it might be slightly pipe dream. He did say that it is subject to the approval of IPG Media Brands, which um, initiative comes underneath. Um, So whether or not they allow it or not is one thing. Um, But yeah, he wanted this to be essentially a glass door for bad clients or good clients um, to leave reviews on. Um, He's registered the domain name, so... um, I don't know how much of an intent that signals, but he seemed pretty keen on it. Um, But yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I did just in live time check Twitter and there are, uh, since Mumbrella360, there have been less than 10 tweets with the hashtag ditch the pitch. And the majority of them are just sharing the story. So (laughs) it perhaps hasn't, you know, caught fire in the way it hopefully would have. Well, maybe it will after this podcast. (laughs) Hashtag ditch the pitch if you're interested. But for now, it's time for Tim Burrows' chat with Nine's Hugh Marks, which took place on stage at Mumbrella 360. Uh, I am Tim Burrows from Mumbrella. With me, our guest is Hugh Marks, who's now been CEO at Nine for the last three and a half years. Now, uh, Hugh first came into TV through the law. He was a former legal counsel to Nine Network before serving as director of Nine Films and Television and going on to run production company Seven Star. Uh, Hugh went on to own talent agents, RPM artists, before taking the helm of Nine. Since taking charge, Nine um, has become Australia's biggest media company. The, uh, he sounds so surprised. Well, it's more than preparing for whether to use the word merger or takeover, but we'll probably get to that in a minute. Uh, but with the, uh, let's call it merger affair with Fairfax, um, and of course also the switch uh, from the home of cricket to the home of tennis, um, a reminder that there will be a chance to ask a few questions later, so start thinking about that now. But for now, please welcome you. So, you let's start that moment when, when you were first offered the job. Um, the media landscape then was, was was quite different to how it looks now. I think a lot of people saw TV as a medium whose 
best days were behind it. Uh, the phrase structural decline perhaps comes to mind. Um, what made you take the job? <laughs> uh, well, look, I've worked in my own obviously in the past, so it's always been in my blood, but I guess I just don't accept um, the notion uh, that anything is coming to any sort of terminal decline. The fact is, um, what we call television is not just freeware television anymore. We've got a great BVOD product in line now. We've got a, an investment in a, a great SVOD service stand, and, and they're all te television for me. So I remember I was driving down the hill towards Willoughby Leisure Centre on my way to the gym, and I was talking to the old CFO who was saying, Hugh, you've got to realise this business is in terminal structural problems. And I remember saying to him at the time, I fundamentally disagree with you. All we have to do is adapt what we're doing to reflect the way that audiences are now consuming content. And is that why he's the former CFO? <laughs> no, not really. Um, maybe part of it. No. Uh, look, it's just a difference of view. And I, I always had this vision that um, you know, we could turn ourselves from a broadcaster to a content business. Um, and if we took that attitude through the way that we ran our business, um, content is king. That's what audiences were really get engaged. Um, so if we could make that transition, then I think this business will have the potential to continue to grow, and I think that's what we've been doing. So before we get into it, um, let's, uh, let's, let's go to something we've been asking your team about the last few days. We've been asking your team, the people reporting to you, what they think of you. Oh, God. So, we well, do this in public, really. <laughs> so, yeah, I think they call it a 360 appraisal, don't they? Oh, yeah. Um, I've never done one until this moment. <laughs> so, I'm going to read some of these to you, and, and perhaps you can tell me why you think they might say that, or whether you, okay. you recognise this in yourself. So, um, and I, I, I won't say who these came from, or you, you, you might be able to guess. So, uh, one, one, of, one, one of the people who reports it to you says, write all the presentations you want but make peace with the fact that he will lightly skim read each page, digest every minute piece of detail, and then drill you like an army sergeant, and then likely uncover the one piece of data that you aren't that sure of. <laughs> you a detailed person? Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, I think you have to have a good team around you that knows the detail. Um, and I learned this from my days with Kerry Packer. What I need to make sure on is that if I go into a bit of detail, that they've got the answer. So um, you just want to know that whoever you're talking to has thought about everything that they need to think about from every angle down quite deep. So yeah, that's how I like to operate. Um, and it's not that I'm trying to find a fault in something. I'm trying to find something that's interesting, that's enough of what we're trying to talk about. Um, and the, the other thing I like is I don't like 20 pages of presentation. I like a one-page presentation, which ultimately is right at the nub of what it is that we're trying to address. So, and I can tell that would have been easy young, without a doubt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we might ask that later for people to identify themselves. So here's another one. He loves creative tension when he's causing the tension. <laughs> and he always enjoys telling me that good people are tricky. <laughs> Definitely Michael Healy. Um, yeah, look, um, creativity does require uh, someone with a vision. Um, creativity doesn't come out of, out of thin air and, and it does require someone that, uh, that's going to drive an agenda. But it also is a, is a shared exercise. And, um, you know, you want to make sure, again, uh, that whatever you're doing, 
has been pulled and tested and, and uh, you know, put through the ringer and really the essence of what it is that you're trying to grab, whether it's a television show or a business plan or whatever it is, um, you know, you've, you've, you've tested all of it to the nth degree so that you end up with something that's simple. It's something that you can communicate to your team, it's something you can communicate to the market. And I think that sort of exercise, that creative tension of what is it that you're really trying to get out the nub here, I think is the most fun part of the business and a bit that I, I, I don't get to do much of, but when I do, I, I absolutely love it. And, um, and so, yes, often I will get carried away in that moment and will end up for a little period of time. But yeah, that creative tension people testing ideas against each other, trying to get the number, the simplicity of what it is you're trying to do is, is I think, the greatest thing about our, our business. Well, let's talk a bit more about how you, how you manage your, uh, your scant time. If and when you're on the receiving end of you saying anyways <laughs> in a meeting, then get the hell out of the office as quickly as possible. He's lost all interest in what you're saying. He just wants the meeting to be over. I don't necessarily want the meeting to be over. I might want the meeting to move on. You know, again, we can end up in endless discussions about things that aren't real or are not going to happen or aren't possible to be achieved. Or so you know, sometimes you know this business is changing quite rapidly, and so you know, again, getting to the nub, the simplicity of what it is that you're trying to talk about in a meeting or in a pitch or whatever it is, is important. So yeah, sometimes I will move the discussion on quite hard. I'm, I'm quite good at gear changes in discussions. So. Um, but again, uh, trying to get the most out of our time, the most out of the time we get to spend together with my team is really important. Well, this one perhaps comes to the evolution of nine. Um, Hugh has encouraged me to be more entrepreneurial. He's given us all the freedom and permission to be innovative and to set new benchmarks for excellence. Probably Steve over that one. Very good. Um, yeah, I think uh, business has changed and we can't. Um, rest on the way that it's been done in the past. We've got to learn from that. And of course, I'm not talking, you don't need to change fundamentally, but you need to change your approach to everything that you do. So being entrepreneurial is a really important skill these days um, because mediocrity, maybe could have we could have survived on mediocrity, you know, in my first era back in the 90s, you know. Four, three television channels, some radio channels, and bit of outdoor, and that was about it. Um, so these days, I think, to make creativity work, you've got to be entrepreneurial. To make a business model work, you've got to be entrepreneurial. To market, I think you have to be entrepreneurial. Um, and, and that's, you know, being better, I think, is what's required in, in this new world. Yeah. So what would be an example of you giving a member of your team the option to do something entrepreneurial then? Uh, well, I think if you, again, if, assuming that came from Steve, I think, you know, one of the things that the sales business has done well at nine is we've invested in um, technology platforms to both make it easier for customers to transact with nine, um, but also easier for us to uh, to be able to be more efficient in that, in that transacting relationship. And, um, you know, and I think what they've done with that technology is they've gone from you know, Galaxy, which was you know, effectively a, a booking or placement system, um, onto you know, Voyager. Um, Let's and talk, I know you're launching Voyager soon. Let's talk about the, the process that got you to doing Voyager, which is the that's the, the, the thing targeting to yeah. all the medium enterprises, the SMEs. Yeah. Who you know, are people that find it hard to access the world of television. Um, you know, it's big media and often it can be expensive, but the fact is. 
um, you know, there's a lot of uh, inventory available in our ecosystem where you can get great results. Um, and so just making that process easier, you know, you've got to compete with the Facebooks and Googles of the world, you know, they've got very great systems for how you work with uh, those businesses. We have to do the same. We can't rely on the fact that we're television and people are going to come to us to buy inventory. We actually have to go out there and make that process easier and sell that process. And this is a technology play. So internally, how did it happen? Um, I think, uh, you know, again, Steve, I would have identified a category of advertiser who maybe wasn't using television or Nine generally um, wasn't accessing the Nine ecosystem and would have thought, right, what's a great way to enable, to open up that as a potential market for our business and using the Galaxy system or what's the next derivation of that? Uh, that's the mindset that you would have gone through. He's probably here, so you could probably tell you if I'm right or wrong. But um, those things, I think, look unproven yet. We'll wait and see what happens and whether people use it. But I think it's a great example of someone in the business going, you know what, I'm going to take what we've done and take it another notch. Well, two more from the team and then we'll, we'll, we'll get to some more questions. Um, the first time we did an investor roadshow in New York, it made headlines in Australia, but only because Hugh insisted that we caught the subway to all of the meetings. <laughs> cost control is what he called it. Well, it wasn't cost control, it was just the most efficient way to get to the meeting in the quickest possible time. So. Um, uh, you know, I don't mind getting on the subway, it's, it's quite fun. You get to see all the people on the subway, what they're doing, whether they're on their phone, whether they're chatting, whether they're asleep in the corner. Um, so, you know, I think um, it's just the easiest way to get somewhere. So nothing really notable in that. She was a down-to-earth person. If you want a sense of just how down-to-earth, recently in Melbourne, this will be a giveaway as well, she called me and asked if we could catch up. I said, of course, where'd you like to meet? He said, in the food court at Cran, which I thought was a bit strange, but off I went to meet him. When I arrived, not only was he sitting right in the middle of the food court with some dodgy takeaway, but he didn't even have his own table. He was sharing it with a young couple with half a dozen children. <laughs> that was a pretty important meeting too, that one, so um, yes, I can tell you that is. No, look, um, there's again nothing in that. I, I, um, probably trying to find a bit of lunch and, and uh, you, uh, Steve, I was available at that time, so it's just the right place at the right time. Um, but yeah, no, look, we, it's amazing actually um, how much business we get done, not in organised meetings, uh, but in the corridor. Um, Michael here uh, is here today and I, um, you know, we'll, we'll have quite a lot of our discussions around, you know, what show that he might be looking at or we might be doing or where there's a issue in the schedule, you know, it'll be a three-minute corridor conversation and, um, and, and we kind of love it like that. We kind of love the unstructured and, and, I guess, agile nature of the business and in a world that's changing so fast, you know, that sort of, I think, culture which we, we now have at Nine is really important to, you know, what's been our success. Well, let's talk about Project Wolfgang, which was the, I'm going to call it, takeover of Fairfax. So, three years ago this month, you were having breakfast at Jago's on Miller in North Sydney. I, I read in Max, who's right up at the, the event at the time, Max from the AFR, who's in the room, um, with Nick Fallou, Fairfax's chairman. What was on your mind? I think Nine's evolution. So, you know, I think uh, when I started at Nine, uh, we had a shit schedule, sorry. Um, didn't launch that well. Uh, we needed to make decisions very quickly. We made some big decisions. We really took a lot of risk, um, but we were prepared to do it for the right reason. 
Um, so, you know, the television business had, had got its programming mojo uh, right, and so that was working. Um, we launched Nine Now, we could see what was coming through that business, we could see how audiences were really engaging with our content in a new platform environment, we could see our audiences for our key content growing reasonably or really significantly by embracing that multi-distribution uh, world. Um, we launched Stan, always a big risk when we did it, I mean between us and Fairfax we probably started with an investment case of $150 million that became $250 million. Um, but we could see the trajectory of that business and where it was going. So, you know, the next thing for us was, well, let's not rest on where we are. The next thing is we need to continue to evolve. And, and, and in that sense, it was a moment where, I guess, we've done a lot of work on the sales side as well. So, um, you know, we had the technology, but we'd also changed our philosophy quite a bit from selling spots to we create a marketing platform where we can build relationships with brands. and. Um, and, and so I think it's in that thinking, like what are we as a business that facilitates marketing outcomes and what might the Fairfax transaction be able to contribute to that marketing platform of the future in a way where we can have those conversations with brands over a much uh, a greater uh, um, ecosystem than perhaps we could have in the past, um, which is about you know us sort of recognising that we're not there again just for people to come to us and, and, uh, and book our spots. We're there as a, as a partner who goes, right, what are you trying to achieve? How can we use our ecosystem to help you do that? Which means people have got to have conversations, bigger conversations with us, earlier conversations, probably more consistent, you know, we'll try some things, they won't work, you might need to come back to it and make it work for next year. So, so that ecosystem, I think, of being a marketing platform and having a lot of options at our, uh, at our disposal to be able to deliver outcomes uh, was what that transaction was about. Um, of course, getting ownership, you know, majority ownership of domain in terms of the business was important. 100% of stand was important, uh, and marketing the marketing platform of the future was also important. So having sort of identified that you, what one of the routes to growth was through the, and, a partnership with another business. Yep. Was it Fairfax or no one in your mind? A little bit, to be honest. I mean, um, you know, there obviously there were there are other media in the market, um, uh, but for us, you know, I feel that we've got within our disposal already, um, you know, assets that are great from a marketing perspective. So, you know, we we could have looked at FM radio. We we could have looked at outdoor. But, you know, again, it would have just... It, one plus one wouldn't have necessarily equaled something that's greater, 2.1. Um, and I think when you look at Fairfax and the way we'll take the business is, um, you know, it's not about just having more inventory. It's actually about saying, OK, well, we've got inventory. OK, so the next step is how do we take a marketing message and start to play a bit more in conversion? Um, how do we do a bit more lead generation? Um, how do we utilise the digital infrastructure that we now have? And of course, when you think about our business now, from a data perspective, we're going through a big data unification project at the moment between Nine, Domain, Stan, obviously Nine Now, and the Mastheads. Um, you know, we will reach pretty much an equivalent number of Australians to what a Facebook would reach. Um, so, you know, again from a perspective of what the media business of the future, just don't buy more inventory, actually buy something that fits the way that people market now. 
and you know the Fairfax and certainly their, their mastheads and their data infrastructure they had plus domain and its data infrastructure. That was what really interested us from a marketing platform perspective. Well, we talked about Stan a bit. Um, there's been lots of great growth for Stan. I guess the, the lifeblood of it is, is content, including the US content. Um, yep. That looks to become a more and more challenging space as all of the studios launch their own offerings. Um, what's, uh, what are the challenges of Stan's growth continuing without bringing in another partner, for instance? Yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that statement. I think, um, <clears throat> you know, I think there's a number of... We were at Hamish Turner and I were at the LA screenings uh, a week or so ago. I can't remember the time since the blur. Um, and I think the stat that we heard is there will be 500 drama series made in America this year. So if you think about that, that's 10 new drama series launching every week. So Stan is not rocket science. All we looked at was, well, that content we used to buy for free-to-air television doesn't work for free-to-air television anymore, but if you think about it from the way that consumers are starting to accept the propensity to pay for content, there's a lot of available content that we can acquire, but we'll have to turn it into a subscription model rather than a free-to-air television model. The fact is, yes, OK, all the studios are talking about going direct-to-consumer, but that's a US thing first. In Australia, um, they will look at, is there an opportunity for them to monetize their content without having to take the risk of going direct-to-consumer? And Stan is in the perfect position to be that business, to aggregate you know, a fair chunk of those 500 drama series out of the States, let alone anything that's not drama, plus what comes out of the UK, um, you know, Stan, there's a lot of content available in the market for it to acquire. And what if that content stops being available? And I, I guess I'm thinking about, I think the first Disney deal was a year, so that's probably more than halfway through that now. Um, yeah. Well, Disney's the biggest brand, right? But you've got to remember this about Disney. If we put Disney up on an Spot service just on its own, at the moment, uh, let alone what they might do in the future, Disney don't make a lot of product every year. Their model has always been, if you're going to make something, make it bloody good and make less of it. And that model has worked for them for a long period of time. So you'd get through the Disney catalogue pretty quickly if it was a standalone escort service. Is there a price you let Disney invest in standalone? Oh, look, these are all options that, you know, um, as Stan continues to grow, from an investment market perspective, you know, is there an option that I could go to the market and say, well, you know, our initial target was two and a half million subscribers. We're north of 1.6 at the moment. So if it's two and a half as the initial target, is there something in terms of a partnership that I could convincingly believe in myself and say to the market, you know what, we're now setting our targets to four to five million subs. So if there are options available in the market that, you know, we're convinced give us that potential, yeah, we'll look at any sort of deal that would enable that. Let's talk about a couple of the, the, the assets where you don't have 100% uh, ownership, um, radio, domain. Uh, there was a piece in, I think, Australia this morning speculating that uh, you might look to take off the, the ASX and the domain you don't own. Radio, John Singleton is suggesting that um, he's like $100 million from you for his bit of uh, Macquarie Media. Um, are, you, are you ready to move to 100% ownership of these things? Oh, newspapers, uh, part of their job is to speculate. Um, so, uh, you know, you have to certainly get used to that in this business. Um, look, where it makes sense uh, for us to do something, we will. Um, we've got a lot of things still in our, uh, in our roadmap to do. Um, so how we prioritise those will depend upon whatever the shifting sands are at the time. 
Macquarie um, Radio, for me, this is an interesting way we look at our business, right? So, um, again, people will classify us as free-to-air television, B-Vod, S-Vod, Domain, you know, and, and Metro Media being a, a, a print digital publishing business. But it's not quite the way we look at it. You know, we look at our businesses, we do news, sport and entertainment. Um, so, good fit for radio. Huh? Good fit for radio. Well, if you look at it as a news business, you go, right, well, how do we invest appropriately in our news business for the future? Um, and how do we get greater benefit out of the content we create, or how do we make that more efficient? So from a news business perspective, we've already got two pretty big news businesses, a television news business, and now we've got Metro the Masters as a news business. Macquarie um, Media is another news business. So, you know, if you think of it in that context, and then you think from a marketing, pl- and then obviously the digital extensions, all of those businesses. So if you think about that in a marketing sense, how do we build marketing relationships with client for our news business across all of those different platforms? And that's really an insight into the way that we think about the business. Um, and if you even take that a step further, and you know, the, the ACCC um, digital platform inquiry, I think, is a really important part of this um, analysis. Yeah, I'll come back to that in a moment. Okay. Well, how do we access Facebook, in the case of news, in a way that we can extend the marketing relationship that we might have with our customers into a social environment, but in and around premium content? So radio, it feels like you're saying there is a strategic case for radio. I was thought I mentioned radio in the family. It's not going to change our world, but it's certainly something that we will look at. But the terms on which we would do that would have to be right. The timing of that would have to be right. So is $100 million right? We've got a lot on our... I'm not going to announce that today. Um, we've got a lot on our plate at the moment, uh, just in terms of bedding down. Uh, the merger, you know, and obviously with a few other things that we've got on our path, it's disposals and other things. So it's just a question of will the deal terms be right? Is the timing right? And if those two things make sense, then something we'll look at. Do you think it'll happen this year? I don't know. I don't know. Well, we will see. We will see. Okay. Let's. Um, and I'll, I'll invite some questions in a moment as well. The other big defining move that's happened in your tenure was the sports rights. Um, what made you decide that tennis rather than cricket was the future? Um, we were a little bit worried, or in fact a lot worried about um, where cricket was going. Um, you know, I think, and in particular, um, the various forms of the game and what that meant, um, you know, if for, the, for that sport going forward. So, you know, we could see in the way that Cricket Australia were looking at their sport, they were certainly prioritising an extension of the big bash, you know, into quite a significant number of new games over the rights that we held, which is the traditional international cricket. So um, how we could play in that ecosystem was quite difficult to see, and we were certainly concerned about it. And in hindsight, those concerns proved to be correct. So, um, you know, tennis was a sport that we looked at always with some envy um, for a number of years just because A, it fits where our television schedule is better in terms of demographics and flow um, and the other benefit that it had for me from a business perspective was it was a $50 million fixed cost reduction in our business. So we're able to reduce our cost base, get a sport that we thought we, we certainly were in synchronicity with where Tennis Australia had their vision for their sport, not so much for Cricket Australia. Um, better flow for our content, 
um, and I think uh, was something we spoke about as a team. I, I think we uh, were at our management conference uh, in New Zealand. We, we like to get away to New Zealand for our once a year management conference because you get that big sky of creativity and you can just see people's eyes lift when we get out of the office and we get that mountain of snow. And, oh, it sounds a bit wanky, but anyway, it works. Um, uh, and I remember we sat down at dinner and I said, hands up cricket, hands up tennis. Uh, we had a discussion about it earlier in the day, the dynamics. And everyone was, without doubt, without exception, was on to, uh, to make a shift. It was a hard thing to pull off, but, but we did. And, um, in hindsight, uh, was, a, was a, a really good decision by the team. Actually, just one more question before I come to the end of the questions. Um, reality TV, um, I guess during the time of some of the star, we, we have you to thank for Big Brother. Um, uh, more Maybe you have to thank John DeMolder, thank you. I'll never forget when I went to the UK, because uh, you know, they said, oh, we've got this show, it's about watching people in a house. Oh, OK, that sounds great. Anyway, we went to the UK and this woman, uh, we went through the you know, camera run and, and up against the glass to look into the house and this woman ran at us and did a handstand and started doing push-up handstands against the wall and the person that was taking it said, that's the last year, nah. And I thought, right, now I get the show, you know. <laughs> well, I guess more recently, the one that certainly here in Australia there's been a lot to talk about is, of course, Married at First Sight. Um, yep. Which rated well, but... Well, but, but was also pretty tacky. Um, tacky. Now, I, I'm wearing my, my, my stepfather hat. I, some days I can turn online and the kids will enjoy watching Lego Masters or Ninja. And then there was three months where we couldn't have the TV on um, at 7.30. Where? What, what's the tension between those two sides of Nine as the family-friendly network and Nine as the incredibly well-rated network with edgier stuff? Where do you call a line on that? Well, I don't agree that it's tacky. I mean, I, I come and even Big Brother, I mean... A lot of laughing when you said that. No, a lot of people in this room will, will, will have a view of these shows, but when you come from a, from a creative point of view, what does it take to put these shows together? They're incredibly complex studies of people and, and the human condition that actually a social experiment. If you watch the show from that perspective, you, you, you know, so I think shows like Married at First Sight, they have a number of layers and it's about understanding those layers and, um, and, and what makes that show tick through those layers that, that I think, whilst it's a different tonal show to Lego Masters, in some respects there's a lot of similarity. So. I mean, I don't have any trouble with my... And I have an 11-year-old boy. I don't have any trouble with my 11-year-old boy watching Married at First Sight. I think it's a brilliant show. And, and it's a show that we sit down and watch as a family and we talk about as a family. And, and so from my perspective, you know, people always have the right to, to switch the channel. It shows that they switched on to Married at First Sight. Um, from my perspective, it's actually a, a fantastic piece of television for people to watch, discuss, think about, talk about, learn from, um, yeah, different to a scripted drama, but sometimes the truth is is, uh, is stranger uh, than, uh, than the fiction, uh, or better than the fiction. Um, so, you know, I, I just think it's a show that, you know, it's your choice to whether you watch it or not, but the facts are that a lot of people don't, did, and um, I actually think it's a show uh, that will continue to grow in its appeal because it talks to a number of things that talks to us as human beings, as Big Brother did in its day. When Big Brother lost that, 
when people started to come into the show and perform for the cameras, um, it lost that element, and that's why people went off it. Um, so I think you've really got to understand the creative um, drive of these shows, and yes, we had a bit of discussion this year about whether we were right tonally or slightly off tonally, and we will continue to have those discussions. But if you really understand the creative drivers of the show, you can understand how that can be suitable for a family audience. Let's invite a question or two. Uh, we have a microphone or two ready to go in the rooms. If you'd like to show a hand and we'll get a microphone to you, if you'd like to ask anything. I see a hand in the front, and I see a hand at the right. I think the microphone will come to Vivian first of all. Hi, Hugh. Wow, that's really loud. Um, Vivian from Umbrella. Um, News Corp have copped some flack for not covering the 50-plus redundancies it will be implementing across its mastheads. Should your mastheads face a similar restructure, how would Nine tackle that? Uh, well, our mastheads are in great shape, so it's not really a, a something that I really... Uh, need to consider at the moment. The fact is we will probably even invest in uh, journalism uh, this year as a result of the work of, that we've done, that that business has done over the last you know, five years. We're now in a position where we're going to increasingly do a model that's more subscription driven than advertiser related. And so we will invest uh, like we are in all our businesses along that pathway. To, and I can actually see growth in, in, uh, in that business as we go forward if we get that subscription driver right. And I think News Limited are just going through the same process, perhaps because of you know the strength of their assets uh, a bit later than uh, what the mastheads, our mastheads, had to, to go through that process. And is there a party line you'd like, you'd like your newspapers to follow when they write about line? No, not at all. Um, I think it's really important that those businesses feel their, uh, their independence of journalism, because if they start writing party lines, the audience will sniff it and call bullshit. I saw a hand at the front there as well. We'll get the microphone over to the uh, front right, please. And then I'll come back to you after that. We'll take that one first. I saw that hand first. Um, Hugh, I'm just interested... Uh, you, might ask, you are aware of Oh, sorry. That's a, that's a very good question. I was going to disclose that because I am from the AFL and I was going to ask a question. Julian Dunn's my name. Um, a question about sports rights. Um, the NFL rights and obviously the AFL rights, um, which come up in 2022, obviously, a long way away. But when do you start preparing for those and who do you see as the main competition? Um, how do you think the landscape will change over the next few years? Yeah, well, I think um, sports rights uh, are an important part of our business, but they need to perform for our business. and. The one thing that's fundamentally changed is the way that we as a business now make money and the way that we build marketing relationships. So again, if you look at something like Married at First Sight, 20 years ago, and take this in sport in the same context, you had a big audience that you could bleed into the next hour. That audience would be comparatively higher. You'd spend less on that program, but take that bigger audience through and monetize that difference. It's called the halo. What happens now is that halo is more difficult to prove. Now, for us as a business, that's okay. We put Married at First Sight online now, and we get roughly a third of the audience that we get on linear television online now, so the audience for Married at First Sight is growing. Different halo. So sports challenge is how do you play in a world where the basis on which rights fees have been done in the past, the halo, 
uh, is the thing that's actually under question in this fragmenting landscape. Um, so that's the challenge for sports organisations. What will the landscape look in five years? Similar to today, a bit different at the margins. Uh, Facebook or Google going to come and buy those rights? No. Bullshit. Um, are we going to be convinced that that's the case? No. You're still going to need television. Television's been funding those sports, whether that be a combination of free and pay for years, and we will be there in five years' time to, to be in the same position uh, because those sports will remain valuable to our schedule. So, you know, this whole world of the world's going to fundamentally change. It won't. It'll change at the margins a bit like all business does. I'll take that question for now, and then we'll come back to the Adrian we'll see question from earlier as well. I've got to stop using bullshit. That's about four times in a row now. We're going to do another word. Hi, Hugh. Um, so, and if you can tell us who you are, where you're from, please. Uh, so, I'm Penny Kalita. I'm uh, Australian Human Media, soon not to be part of mine in a few weeks' time. Um, but really wanted to get your thoughts, Hugh. Obviously, the Boomtown um, Collective is here as a major sponsor today. With your business mind, what is one piece of advice or a couple of pieces of advice that you would give regional media as a channel to, uh, you know, hopefully promote success? Yeah, I think, like, um, you know, and one of the reasons why we disposed of ACM was it needs an owner who's going to come in and invest in the business for what that business is now capable of doing. So in metro markets, I think we have done an incredible job of um, uh, engaging with an audience and taking that audience experience across a multi-platform ecosystem. So you're adapting your business constantly at the margin. I think the issue for businesses like community media is you've started down that path but probably well behind where maybe that should have happened. So engaging with communities that you serve as an asset, not just in the traditional platform that it is, but across all the places that those consumers or those your consumers consume content, and doing that in a way where, again, you can take that marketing relationship across those multiple platform environments, including into social. That's what every media business needs to do, to adapt. Well, let's, uh, let's, 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 let's briefly touch on politics. So, AWC is doing this platforms inquiry. We have a new communications minister in Paul Fletcher. What's your, what's your shopping list for the, for the government? The most important thing in the digital platforms inquiry for us is... We're a content company. Um, we recognise that we need to distribute that content over more platforms and engage audiences in ways uh, where they're now consuming content. The problem with the digital platforms is we've not been able to do that in a way where we can take our commercial relationship into those platforms. So our message to the ACCC, to the government, is... We need the ability to be able to commercialise our content in a social environment. And that's all that we need. Um, the, everything else that goes around the side is fine, but if we can do that, then again, increment at the margin, we can adapt our business at the margin, and we can continue to invest in content, whether that be, and we might come in various places where the content will start, we can continue to invest in that content, which will continue to provide a great outcomes for audiences and B, great outcomes for advertisers. And is Fletcher a good appointment? Yeah, I think he is. I mean, I, Paul actually was a lawyer with me and Alison's uh, way back in, well, I won't tell you the year. Um, 
Uh, and we were part of, he at that time used to do the uh, Mallison's Law Review, a bit like the Sydney Law Review. He was the organiser, I was the drummer in the band, plus the comedic act. Uh, I used to come on and pretend to water pot plants. Anyway, so, uh, so we go back a long way. He's always had um, an interest in media. Um, so, yeah, I think he's a, he's, he's a great... Is he a mate? Would you go that far? No, no. Obviously, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't say we're mates, but we certainly know each other from those days and have kept in touch, uh, obviously, through his journey as well, through, through um, his government. Yeah, we might have time just for one or two more questions. I see a hand at the front. Microphone coming this way. Thank you very much. Hello, Zoe. Hi, Hugh. How are you going? Good. Um, Sammy from the Australian. Formerly of Mumbrella as well. Um, I just had a question about uh, the different assets that you were going to sell off. I know Tim touched on it, but how much of a priority is selling the New Zealand business? I know you talked about that a lot at the time of the merger. I'm just curious to see if that's something you're still hoping to sell off soon rather than later? Oh, look, I think um, uh, it's, you know, again, one of those questions. If there's a proposal that makes sense for us to exit the business, um, it's going to be hard for us to give the attention and time that that business deserves to be able to go on to its next future. So that would be a better outcome. Um, but if we can't get a proposal that makes sense for shareholders, then we'll run the business. I love going out of New Zealand. Um, and, I, and I think what that business has done pretty well as they really did invest in their digital future quite early. So stuff, uh, I know, not the great, greatest word, but anyway, so neither is Apple and Network, um, but stuff as a digital news presence um, is the strongest digital news presence in the New Zealand market. So, you know, that business does, has invested in that future quite a long time ago. Let's talk about your customers, marketers. Do you see many brave marketers out there at the moment? Um, Look, increasingly, um, you know, I like to think um, what we've done with Nine, we couldn't have done without some big, brave, risky decisions, um, both on a content creativity level but also on an investment level. Um, you have to make big decisions these days to get great results. Um, this sort of era of, you know, performance-based marketing, buying the lowest common CPM and, you know, putting that on your board report, um, it's not the recipe for success. Yes, okay, I'm always like to say, it's a bit like when you go shopping, right? You're going to buy, Kmart's got some bloody good things that are cheap, and you're going to go in there and buy it, but you're also going to buy some premium stuff because you're putting together a whole image. And that's the modern world of media. Um, so that performance cheap marketing is not the result. You have to have the whole suite of assets. That's how we've set up our business. So being brave, big ideas, big creative ideas, utilising all of our assets um, and doing that in a way where you engage with us earlier because we can actually contribute to that ecosystem rather than later. Reactive is, you know, I mean, there's always a place for it. Obviously, it depends on what you're trying to solve from a marketing perspective. But big early discussions around big ideas are what we certainly feel is needed in this world. We've had to do that as a business. I think marketers need to do the same. I think it's, it's a fact that the market's tough from the moment. We saw the latest SMI numbers, saw a, a, a pretty tough month, not just for TV, but for media generally. Um, what I've been sitting up here, I've just seen a flash up from the AFR saying that the, the last set of quarterly growth for the country in GDP was just, I think it said, 0.4%. Are we, are we in for a tough few months, do you think? 
as a leader, as a, as a leader. Well, I think we've been through some really tough months. Um, you know, May and June look a bit better to us post-election. Um, you know, uh, a lot of it has to do with just the general fuck. You know, with property prices decreasing, that makes it hard for, for autos. Um, yeah, you know, makes it hard for um, financial services, raw commissions. There's just been a lot of stuff, right? Um, and that lot of stuff is slowly working its way through the system and post-election will accelerate, um, which gives us cause, I think, for, for great optimism as we go through into the next financial year. But, you know, certainly the, you know, the world environment still seems a bit, you know, again, there's just stuff that um, hasn't been dealt with. And, you know, um, so not that I can influence world politics, but certainly in Australia, um, I just feel post-election, you know, interest rate cut, um, a bit more certainty, you know, it's amazing how an election victory has made that government look brilliant um, and the opposition look terrible. Um, so I, I think that will feed through the system and give people more confidence. So I, I, it'll be better than what it's been for the last six, seven months. And just finally, I think when we look at your career, it's a definite chapter, you know, as a, as a lawyer, as a you know, talent manager, etc., as a production. For nine, what... In, in, in your own career, what, what does mission accomplished look like? I'll let you know when we get there. Um, it's really hard to know. Though. I mean, I can't. There's no big new things coming down um, uh, on the horizon. You know, it's just an evolution of the the things that are happening at the moment. The rise of on-demand viewing, um, the rise of you know propensity to pay for content, um, and these are things that well we're, we're positioned well positioned for as a business to participate in. And then I think you've got the things that haven't changed. You know, we've got this three-part um, uh, strategy, which we communicate to all our staff, which is create great content, distribute it broadly, and engage audiences and advertisers. The create great content has never changed, won't change. It'll be like that in 20 years' time. The engagement has never changed, won't change. It's just the distribution in the middle. Um, and provided we as a media business and marketers can embrace that change in distribution in a way where you really maximise your return, you know, for us getting audiences or for marketers selling shit, um, provided you can, you can actually get through that embracing of that world, then, you know, yes, it'll change, but it changes at the margins and you just got to change along with it. Is there a succession plan in place for you? I've got heaps of people that would brilliantly qualify to take over from me at some stage. And uh, that is the holy grail. When I make myself redundant, I'll know I've done a great job. Please join me in thanking you. And that's it for this week. But before we go, one of our favourite Night of Nights is coming up. The Mumbrella Awards takes place on the 27th of June at the Star in Sydney to celebrate the best in the business. It's the culmination of months of work on the industry's part with live judging sessions, agency visits and some pretty intense debates, discussions and sometimes disagreements. If you're up for an award and you haven't yet secured your ticket, time is running out before the big night. So head to mumbrella.com.au slash mumbrella awards. That's it for this week, though. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Dave. Thanks. 